Welcome to Traveling Culturati, where we explore cultures and share travel news, travel tips, destinations, and travel chats. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Well, hey there, fellow Culturati. Javon Harley here, your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. Well, it is March, and March is Women's History Month. Throughout the month, we'll highlight women in travel. We'll address their roles, those who have paved the way, and those who are charting new courses. We're kicking off the month with Jamie Lee Abtar, Executive Director of Women in Travel for their BAME program. And she's a marketing and business development consultant with the emphasis on helping brands to engage and attract BAME and BIPOC brands and consumers. Now, BAME stands for Black, Asian, Minority, Ethnic, and BIPOC, as you may know, is Black, Indigenous, People of Color. We'll also have Javon's Travel Minute and the Culture Report. But right now, let's get into a little travel news. Well, Crystal Cruise Lines will require all guests to be fully vaccinated before boarding a future cruise. Crystal's interim president and CEO, Jack Anderson, said in a statement, We are encouraged by the progress being made with the COVID-19 vaccines and what this means for our Crystal family and the travel industry as a whole as we eagerly look forward to exploring the world again. We know that peace of mind is the greatest luxury and the vaccine requirement is simply the best way to ensure the safest possible crystal experience for all on board. Now, all passengers will be required to wait at least 14 days after their final COVID-19 vaccination shot and provide proof of that vaccination before embarking on a ship. Crystal will also seek to ensure its crew are vaccinated, but noted that that endeavor may be harder as they come from different countries around the world with different vaccine policies and availability. In addition to the vaccine, both guests and crew will have to test negative for COVID-19. They have to undergo temperature checks and wear masks when appropriate as part of the cruise line's Crystal Clean 4.0 protocols, which you can get on their website. Anderson also said that all crew would have to provide a negative COVID test before leaving their home countries to join the ship. They'll have to quarantine for seven days upon arrival and get a second negative test before beginning their duties. The cruise line has paused operations through at least May on its river cruises and into June on its ocean sailings. The company's expedition and yacht ships are on pause into August. Crystal is the latest company to require guests to be fully vaccinated before sailing. They join Saga Cruises, which caters to passengers 50 and older, American Queen Steamboat Company, and Victory Cruise Lines. Several other lines, including Royal Caribbean, Norwegian Cruise Line, and Regent Seven Seas, will aim to vaccinate all crew going forward. Back in December, Emirates Airlines received their A380 aircraft, and they come with their signature and much sought after in-flight experience. Their upgraded experience now includes a new premium economy cabin with wider seats to the tune of 19.5 inches. And with an eight inch recline, a 40 inch pitch, bigger screens for entertainment that are 13.3 inches and in-seat charging spots. Love that. The premium economy seats will also be retrofitted onto some of their Boeing 777X aircrafts. According to an airline representative, the premium economy experience will be offered as a complimentary upgrade for now. This is so they can test out the new class. There are other updates to include Emirates first class suites with wider and taller doors and all of the interiors will have a champagne and cream color scheme. Now, I love this for a new hotel policy. Guests at the Peninsula Hotels can now arrive whenever the mood strikes. And add to that, leave whenever they feel like it. <laughs> Let me explain. Back in November, Peninsula Hotels announced they would cancel check-in and check-out times starting in the new year. That means guests can show up whenever they like with no additional charges or fees. The same goes for departures. Reps for Peninsula say that they're sure this is a welcome change for their guests, especially now during so much uncertainty. 
You don't always have control over your arrival and departure times, especially when you're flying. And for me, one of the worst things is to have to wait around for a check-in time that seems to be getting later and later, and a check-out time that seems to be getting earlier and earlier. A lot of hotels have a check-out time of 3 p.m. or even 4, and a check-out time of 11, and I've seen some as early as 10, especially at resorts. Now, the trial run was tested at the Peninsula Beverly Hills, and the global program has followed. Now, what's going to happen to the famous Las Vegas buffets? I know a lot of people who go to Vegas, and one of the things they have to do on their list is go to one of those famous buffets, especially those seafood buffets. So in addition to casinos and entertainment, that's what Las Vegas is known for. However, there is another thing the pandemic has greatly affected. Several properties moved away from buffet services, including Wynn and Circus Circus, replacing theirs with a food court. Caesars and Station Buffets won't operate anytime soon, but South Point Casino, they have continued their garden buffet, but they do have some adjustments. Michael Kennedy, director of food operations at South Point, told News 8 that buffets of the past where people just walked up and grabbed utensils are no longer the case. We now have dedicated staff who will serve you from behind the buffet line. Also noting, we get calls every day to make sure that our buffet is still open, and we are thankful that it is, as we are doing so safely. Would you feel comfortable going to a buffet, even with the changes like a dedicated staff? Let me know. Now, I certainly think that buffets will come back, but probably not in full force until, well, we all kind of get back to normal, which will be another year or two. Every year since 2014, spring break events at the beach in South Mississippi promoted as Black Beach Weekend occurs. This year, however, organizers of the annual Black Beach Weekend say that the fun will have to be pushed back a few months. The organizers with Black Beach Weekend say that spring break will become late summer break due to the pandemic. The events will now be promoted as the Summer Beach Festival and will happen in August. They issued a statement saying many social events across the country are still being plagued by COVID-19 and restrictions as the country continues to cope with the ongoing pandemic. Under these circumstances, we simply cannot provide the high level of fun, freedom, and quality of entertainment that many have become accustomed to and expect. In the interest of public health and for the continued success and expansion of our event, we will be moving all organized Black Beach Weekend events to August 27, 28, and 29. The Summer Beach Festival will still feature many of the events that visitors to the Gulf Coast look forward to each year, including the concert and the car and bike show. New events will also be added to the lineup, according to the organizers. Marriott International's late CEO Arne Sorensen passed away unexpectedly last week after a battle with pancreatic cancer. To honor Sorensen, the J. Willard and Alice S. Marriott Foundation and Howard University will establish the Marriott Sorensen Center for Hospitality Leadership with a $20 million endowment. Marriott International has also pledged $1 million to create the Arne M. Sorensen Hospitality Fund to help underwrite programming and career development at the center once it launches. This comes at a time when the hospitality and many other industries face tremendous and long overdue financial pressures with racial inequities that have prevented minorities from advancing to the highest echelons. Howard University, one of the leading historically black colleges and universities in the country, should provide the perfect setting in which to achieve and further this pledge. The university's president, Dr. Wayne A.I. Frederick said that this program will be a game changer for Howard University students and the hospitality industry by designing unique educational opportunities that meet the future demands of the industry shaping the already promising students and passions of their business students and connecting those students with meaningful careers in the industry. In addition to the center itself, the Arne M. Orenson Hospitality Fund will support several career development initiatives for students. Among them will be the opportunity to interact with hospitality industry leaders as part of the curriculum. 
An advisory council will also be formed with members to serve as mentors and guest lecturers, as well as providing hands-on learning opportunities to students. I, for one, think this is such a welcome opportunity, not only for such a fabulous HBCU, but for the hospitality industry as well, one of which I'm proud to be a part of. Now, airlines may be operating only 40% of what they were pre-pandemic, so that's a reduction of more than half of all flights, but they're still struggling with their on-time rate. They did manage to improve 2019 to 2020 by a whopping 5.53%. In 2020, U.S. Airlines managed to operate 84.5% of their flights on time. This is according to the year-end data just published by the U.S. Bureau of Transportation Statistics. In 2019, U.S. Airlines performed at 78.97% on time. Well, what does this mean? It means that they got to their arrival gates within 15 minutes. That's a grace period granted by the U.S. Department of Transportation before they're declared a late flight or officially late. So why only a 5.53 improved on-time rate with a 60% reduction of flights? Well, the two main reasons are weather and the ripple effect. Weather is the biggest culprit, and it too plays a part in the ripple effect. Once a flight is delayed, the flights afterwards are affected as well. And of course, there are a ton of other factors that we're not going to get into today. So I guess we'll just have to be happy with the 5.53% improvement. Some more great news from Emirates Airlines. If you want to fly but don't want the seats, yes, plural, next to you occupied for a bit of social distancing, Emirates is now offering economy class passengers the ability to book the adjacent empty seats during the pandemic. All passengers with a confirmed economy class booking will be able to purchase up to three empty adjoining seats before boarding their flights. The seats are not available to be pre-booked and will only be available at the airport upon checking in for your flight. Each seat will cost from 55 to 165 plus applicable taxes. This, of course, is depending on the flight and the availability will vary depending on how full the flight is. Now, just think about it. You can have the entire row to yourself or couples can have that empty middle seat or even two seats between them and families could possibly have two or three rows to themselves during these pandemic times. The ability to social distance is now becoming a competitive perk. Remember this? Last year, ultra-low-cost Frontier Airlines introduced the ability to book an empty middle seat. They called it a more room fee, and it started at $39. The idea was quickly dropped after a huge backlash. Frontier's CEO Barry Biffle said at the time, we simply wanted to provide our customers with an option for more space. We recognize the concerns raised that we are profiting from safety, and this was never our intent. I guess timing is everything. <laughs> well, that's all I've got for travel news. And when I come back, we'll have Javon's Travel Minute and Jamie Lee Abtar, Executive Director of Women in Travel's BAME program. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you head on over to that website, TravelingCulturati.com, connect with me on social media, and join that travel club. And now, Javon's Travel Minute. I always like to give a tip of some of my must-haves for when I travel. So today I'm going to talk about samples. Yes, just head on over to your department stores and go to your cosmetic counters or your perfume counters and ask for samples. And certainly if you're buying something, you can ask for even more samples. But samples are always at the ready and they're perfect travel size products. 
I keep a bunch of them in my toiletry bag and boy, do they come in handy. Everything from shampoo to makeup to body creams and lotions and perfumes. You can even test out different ones to see which ones you like, but it's always nice to have that little sampler in your purse or in your travel bag, your toiletry bag, for whenever you need it. So don't forget, next time you go to the department store, head on over to the cosmetics counter and the perfume counter and ask for some samples. This is Javon, and that was your Travel Minute. It's March, and that means it's Women's History Month. Throughout the month, we'll highlight women in the travel industry. We'll address their roles, those who are paving the way and charting new courses. Joining me today is Jamie Lee Abtar, Executive Director of Women in Travel, the BAME program, and a marketing and business development consultant with an emphasis on helping brands to engage and attract BAME and BIPOC consumers. Well, hello, Jamie, and welcome to Traveling Culturati all the way across the pond, as uh, my mother used to say. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> well, let's talk a bit more about you and your start in the travel industry. How and why did you get started? Ooh, well, as you listen on a bit more, you'll start to hear my accent. So I'm actually from the beautiful island of Barbados. So I'm privileged to call Barbados home. And it has been my home from birth. Um, I only moved to the UK 11 years ago. So Barbados is essentially what has inspired me to be in the travel and tourism industry. I grew up during that time where the development of the island in terms of the travel and tourism product was now being really developed. Tourism was becoming a thing and, you know, was starting to contribute to the local economy. And I saw the direct link of how, you know, travel and tourism was able to provide so many people within the country with opportunities. People were able to build their houses. You saw the development happening. It was at that point that I really wanted to work in the industry and be very instrumental in the future development of the overall industry. I think for me now, when it comes to travel and my marketing hat on and why I kind of fell into the marketing field is my first job was working for a destination management company in Barbados called Fostering Inks. It started out with me being the sign holding girl outside the airport, welcoming guests to Barbados and and waving them off as they were leaving from the cruise ships. So that's where my kind of first start was. And they saw potential in me and invited me back to join their team when I finished university. So I started working with them on board with the cruise ships and getting to understand the operational side of the travel and tourism, uh, the cruise industry. Um, really exciting. But it was then that I kind of had this part. I wanted to know more in terms of why do consumers choose a particular destination over another, you know, understanding how to kind of build brand image. And that's what brought me to the UK. I came to the UK to study, do my master's in tourism management and marketing. So that's how that all started. That's kind of my, my, my birth into the UK and where I am now. I mean, I worked, I then got the opportunity to do an internship with the Caribbean Tourism Organization. Funny story is I only just left their team in 2019. I was invited back to work with them and help them develop their brand here in the UK. And I only left them last year, January. So it's been an interesting journey in the industry, worked with tourist boards, tour operators, had my dream job of, you know, traveling all over the Caribbean and inspecting hotels, doing all that great work. So it's been an exciting journey and that's brought me to the place where I am at now, having just joined Women and Travel last year to focus particularly on the BAME program, uh, Black and Asian Minority Ethnic, so those who aren't familiar with the acronym and it's been an exciting journey. It's something that, you know, as I was working in the industry here in the UK, coming from Barbados, I, I like to say it's almost it was like a bit of a culture shock for me because I come in from a, a country where it's predominantly black people in power and positions. And then you're coming into this place where, you know, very, you know, white male and I always recall this event that I attended and it had like 200 directors of tourism. And I was the only black person in that room. And I was just like, I know that this is not possible. We are talented. We can occupy these spaces as well. Why was I the only one there? Uh, and that kind of really 
pushed me to want to help to amplify and to showcase those exceptional individuals in the travel and tourism industry. Like yourself, I often find, even still today, when I travel or when I go to industry functions and events globally, there are very few minorities in these spaces, or you find that you're the only one when I go on, for example, a familiarization trip or a site inspection, and you feel like you're in this fishbowl (laughs) of sorts, and you're trying to figure things out. But I want to talk more about the organization, Women in Travel, CIC, and the BAME program, because it's what kind of brought me to you on LinkedIn, actually. And I saw an article that you posted just kind of a reflection piece. And I started clicking more and more and learning more about you. (laughs) Fantastic. That's good to know. That's great to know. But I mean, Women on Travel is a social enterprise. So we really work to support our communities. I'd say until I manage the BAME program, but there are two others. We've got entrepreneurship and through our returners program as well, where we work with vulnerable women in the travel and tourism industry. And a big focus for us, and I would say key and at the heart of women and travel is all around training and mentoring and helping to assist all women in the travel and tourism industry. The individual strands obviously deal particularly with, you know, there are some women that have more challenges than others. And that's why we have our BAME program and we have our returners program so that we can really help to support minorities in the travel and tourism industry. In terms of the BAME program, we have an amazing community of, you know, career-driven ladies, entrepreneurial ladies as well, content creators, who all want to kind of build profitable businesses in the travel and tourism industry. For us, being women and travel, I'd say we have, in the last year, as we all know, we had the death of George Floyd, we had the subsequent BLM movement, and that kind of has amplified the message and the need for, you know, more racial diversity within the travel and tourism industry, something that we had been fighting for for quite a while, because the organization BAME program was launched back in 2018. So we were pretty ahead of it. I'd say the founder, Alessandra Alonso, you know, she really did see the need as a white woman, you know, that there was a lack of individuals from a Black, Asian and minority ethnic background within certain positions within the industry or actually being visible within the industry. So that was launched then. I'd say, no, we really sit on kind of four core purposes, our program, which is all around how can we help organizations and brands in terms of recruitment and retention of employees, when it comes to engaging with diverse consumers. So we do a lot of consulting work with organizations and developing initiatives for them to support their BAME staff as well. We also develop training and resources and very soon we'll be doing more statistical work because I am very data driven and I like to follow the data. And I, I find that we have to do that sometimes to ensure that You know, even though it's a societal and a moral issue, we have to show them the business case to it, unfortunately. So sometimes to take it seriously and to see the need for it. So the BAME program is multifaceted. We have our community that we support and then we have the organizations that we work with to help them to, you know, become more diverse and inclusive. I just love your background in that it wasn't a narrow focus of the travel industry, because I think a lot of times that narrow focus is the travel agent, but it's such a huge industry and it's so multifaceted and it's big, big business that I think because it's leisure, people only look at the fun parts and not (laughs) the business part of it. I 100% agree with you, you know, in terms of that narrow focus. And I do a lot of work. I've got a couple of different hats that I wear sometimes. (laughs) And one of them is I'm an ambassador for the ITT Future U, so the Institute of Travel and Tourism, their Future U program, which is really geared towards students and encouraging students into the travel and tourism industry. So we know that we've got a lack of students from a BAME background coming in and wanting to study travel and tourism industry. And one of those reasons is definitely because of the lack of visible role models, but also because that narrow view of what, in terms of a role that you can have within the industry. And I love when I'm able to bring 
individuals who are working in industry and in roles like brand partnership and, and human resources and finance and tech and all these different areas to really go and show these young students, especially those from a minority background. That's kind of why I came onto the program to ensure that there was a visible representation of, you know, for students to see that they could kind of achieve and they can become and do anything in the travel and tourism industry. It's not limited at all to being a travel agent or an air hostess. You know, there are exciting roles in the industry. There certainly are. And to that point, I think on the education and training side, that part is lacking. And I think that's why people are so confused. I mean, back when I came along, I mean, I've had my business for more than 20 years, but I've been in the industry for more than 30 years. There was the travel agent school. But as far as university, there wasn't major hospitality representation in in that sense. And I think that's changing a bit. And the travel agent schools just don't exist anymore. But there is that hospitality in education. Because when you think about the industry at large, as you said, you mentioned finance, of course, there's business. And these are all the things that people don't really talk about. And of course, marketing now extends to digital marketing. And that's a whole nother... Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it's a whole nother world. And if as an industry, we really want to, I mean, the industry right now is not in the best shape. And I mean, coming back now in terms of looking at recovery, we also have to kind of take into consideration how we attract talent to the industry. So this really needs to be a focus, you know, for organizations right now, I think, you know, when it comes to the recovery period and attracting back talent, you know, how do we make the industry attractive? How do we make it that they want to come and be a part of the travel and tourism industry I mean, the future. Yeah. And it's a free form industry. So I would like to see some of those things really implemented because, you know, again, that narrow focus of being a travel agent. And then so many people think that I too can be a travel agent and it's promoted in that way. When you talk about these multi-level marketing companies that want to attract people into the travel industry, It is that, again, narrow focus, but it's not really addressing the business side of it. And then that's where you get all of these issues that come along with it. So I really would like to see that change. But I do want to focus more, you know, back to women in the travel industry. The blog that I'm talking about that you wrote was how women and minority businesses were impacted the most in 2020, of course, with the pandemic, and they were the ones that were most in need. What were your findings there? Well, we know that globally, I mean, the travel industry probably lost like 100 million directly impacted by the industry. And a lot of those roles take into consideration those that we would call that informal sector, which predominantly are a lot of loads of females, you know, who could be tour guides, who could be vendors, who sell arts and craft attractions, you know, at the lower level of the travel and tourism industry. I think it's like 60% of the workforce globally is female. <laughs> so it kind of shows you the impact that COVID would have had on women in the travel and tourism industry. And we have been working really hard all last year to support, I believe it's up to 1,200 hours of support as a small social enterprise that we are, you know, providing 1,200 hours of support to females was really, really important because we had women who would have had jobs that were probably at, you know, really good levels in the industry. And now because of COVID, they lost their jobs. So we really did a lot of work in terms of supporting women in the industry through our mentoring circles and providing that supportive network because essentially it's really important for minority women I find in the industry to develop our own kind of support networks because they don't exist for us and we provide that kind of safe space to come where you can talk to us we can give you advice we can help you develop your cvs and develop your training and you can get training knowledge through our lunch and learn programs to do our best to kind of support them as best as possible i think Yeah, I mean, in terms of any other findings, I mean, globally, the impact has been tremendous on women, particularly in the destinations that we travel to. You know, in some countries, the majority of their GDP is travel and tourism. We are talking Mm -hmm. about families that are now 
without any source of income for the next few months and years because we don't know how long it's going to take for the industry to fully recover and get back to those pre-corona figures so it has been really devastating for women in the industry and then we've had to take on the additional challenge of homeschooling and that we have countries where the domestic abuse rates has risen so there's been so many challenges and so many things that has happened in the past few months that really directly affect women yeah and i think also helping people chart this course of Dealing with what happened in 2020 financially and then your rebound period, which we're in now, it's like, how do we come out of this? And then we know we're going to have to prepare for that boom because, you know, once people can travel more or more people are more comfortable with traveling again, I did a blog post on the similarities of like the roaring 20s from the aftermath of 1918 pandemic and mm-hmm. then World War One, and then what happened afterwards, which was the 1920s, the roaring 20s. Mm-hmm. And I like to call it the hashtag y- YOLO years I think we're going to deal with in 2022 and 2023. So you have to be prepared for that, but you have to first make it through and have a plan and a strategy to get to that point and and then to be able to deal with it (laughs) and women need to be central to that because we had in the last 10 years we have worked tremendously women have worked tremendously hard to get gender equality and you know covid has kind of knocked us back a a number of years so we really want to implore organizations that they come and as they rebuild and they recover and they think and they reimagine how they can make this travel and tourism industry stronger, bigger and better, is to include women in the conversation, in the voices in your organization, and particularly women from a diverse background, because as we know, the studies are all, I won't actually quote any of the percentages. I let people to go and do the work for themselves. You know, go and do your research in terms of why diversity is important. You see the direct benefits between organizations who don't and those who are embracing diversity and inclusion because it is a growth strategy for your organization. So it's really key to have, you know, diverse voices at the table. Yeah. And while 2020 was, and we're still feeling the effects of it, devastating, I think it also focused that lens on the issue. And so it gave us that kind of gem, that jewel to say, we need to focus here. And this is what's happening. It really allowed us to peel back the carpet to see what was really going on. Otherwise, we were all just going business as usual and not really paying attention to diversity and the needs of it and the disparities. Now, there was a piece that I read that was published in 2019 in Travel Pulse, and it read that women actually make up 76% of travel agents, and then they are a primary amount of employment in the travel industry overall. They have the highest purchasing power, but the greatest gender disparity, especially in top ranks of the travel industry. We have to tackle that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) This is something that we see day in and day out. And this is why uh, one of the other kind of driving forces for me in the industry, you know, is to see not just at the lower levels in the industry as agents, but also in those boardrooms. We need to be on those senior management teams and leadership teams. If you're going to see any type of change, we need to be a part of those conversations and a part of those teams. So what's a lot of the work that we do with organizations, some of the organizations that we work with who are really committed to diversity and inclusion is to develop initiatives within your organization to help to support the individuals from a being background and being females, especially when they get into there. So yes, you get them in. Everybody now, particularly after summer, now wants to kind of employ and make sure that they have got their diversity targets and they make sure they employ Black and Asian individuals into their organization. But what happens after you employ them? And that's the big challenge right there. And it's how do we help to retain them within the organization and progress them up to senior positions? Do you know? And part of that is kind of the initiatives that we develop to support them in-house. And then we also have the ones that are already there. How do we make them visible so that we attract more individuals from you know these backgrounds to the industry so we worked last year I think we worked with world travel market to develop the 
15 BAM High Flyers program. And it's all about kind of highlighting those 15 trailblazing ladies within the industry from that background. And the response when that was phenomenal, you know, the lady response, the feedback from the ladies was great because, you know, for the first time, you know, some of these ladies been working in the industry well over 30 plus years and never had any kind of recognition. So for them, this is new. And, you know, it's really great to always hear that kind of feedback and make people see that they're appreciated. And then we also doing something great. We're showing the younger generation that, you know what, I can do that. I can be that and be visible in industry. So diversity and inclusion is a journey. It is a journey that I encourage organizations within the travel industry to really take seriously because as an industry, we are all about connecting cultures and races and bringing people together and traveling all over the world. And I think that we should really be championing and we should be leading the pack when it comes to diversity and inclusion and being some of the most diverse organizations, but we aren't there just yet. (laughs) Yeah. And I love what you said as far as not just hiring people and fulfilling those numbers but what kind of support do they have and how do you further that cause you know allowing them to be more visible so that they don't feel like they're me just keep my job I don't want to rock the boat you know I don't want to do anything that's going to cause too much attention because that could be seen as a negative thing but Mm -hmm. how do I thrive in this position and then how do I help create an environment where we're increasing and how do we get to the point where the industry is reflective across the board. If we're talking about women make up the majority of the travel industry, then that Mm -hmm. should be reflective from the lowest position to the highest position. In the hotel industry, again, majority of the women make up housekeeping and that kind of service position, but not the CEOs or the the (laughs) hotel owners. That is very small. And actually, even in aviation, for example, only 5.2% worldwide are pilots. So, you know, when you look across the board, and it's worse in the United States, American, Delta, and Southwest only make up 4.9, 4.8, and 4.1 female pilots, respectively. So it's across the board. The cruise industry, I think, is the best, but only at 5.4% are cruise officers. Um, Are cruise officers. So that number, you're talking about 5%. But if you're looking at a number that women make up more than 60% overall in the travel industry, there's a problem there. Yeah, that's a huge problem. And I'm glad you brought up the cruise industry because they are doing a lot of work, particularly Royal Caribbean, the championing for, you know, females within the organization. In the last probably year to two years, they've appointed like female ship captains. And so they've really been, you know, on a journey to kind of develop and be, you know, more open to, to women in these positions. So I'm happy to see that. But as always, it's, you know, these small steps. So small steps, big impact. I try to look at it that way. <laughs> Yeah. And I like Um, that women in travel, you have a great mentorship program, which I think having a mentorship program is so key in any industry. mm -hmm. And I've never really seen one in the travel industry. Mm -hmm. So I really like that aspect. Is that globally or is that just in the United Kingdom? So it's globally. Our programs are global. Pre-COVID, post-COVID, and living in a COVID world now, we are all online. We're all connected. So our program is global. We have ladies from Europe, from the USA, even within our community. Our community is very global. We have a real mixed bag. And as you said, mentoring is key and it's central to what we do and training. We recently launched our new mentoring packages. So we have our new mentoring circles where you can come and, you know, join one of our support circles and which I did I joined one last year and that I I tell you no lie that is one of the reasons that I survived (laughs) 2020 that those ladies the support was absolutely amazing helping me to keep focused on my business helping to keep focus on my mind my mental and just having ladies who are you know going through the same things and struggles that you are experiencing and able to help you and you know provide advice and support and we are there to be accountable for each other it was brilliant and I guess that's why I can say that I ended last year pretty happy with the work that we had done and I account that my support circle to that for sure so it really is important it really is key and you know individuals listening to the show can just go check us out on our website we've got all our mentoring packages there we offer free mentoring as well for up to two hours so you can apply there online if you want to be a mentor 
we encourage people to come and join our main we want more mentors to increase our mentor bank you know because if you are there two hours you know it's a small price to get a little bit of giving back to do to help and support the industry and help and support minority women in the travel and tourism industry absolutely because most of us have figured a lot of things out on our own in navigating the industry so if and you can that impart is, that wisdom. yeah that's one of the things we had a podcast so we have a podcast as well called breakthrough to excellence and every single lady one well, these ladies you know have been in the industry a long time and every single one of them said you know what i didn't have a formal mentor I never had a formal mentor. I had lots of people that I could probably think, but I never had a formal mentor, but it's something that I wish I had, you know, and that's why they give back because they want to ensure that, you know, they give back and that somebody doesn't have to go through the same struggles that they went through to get to that position. And that's how we drive change faster. (laughs) That's definitely how we drive change faster by helping each other, sharing the knowledge that we have, collaborating and moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jamie Lee, thank you so much for, joining me today. It was so refreshing and such wonderful work that you all are doing. What is the website for women in travel? So it's women in travel cic.com. So that's where you can find us. And we're on all the social platforms as well. Again, thank you so much. No, thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. When we come back, we'll have the culture report with Rocky Bucano from the Universal Hip Hop Museum. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you head on over to the website, travelingculturati.com. And while you're there, connect with me on social media and join that travel club. Culture is forever changing and reflecting what's happening in the society and with its people. It can be born from the arts, music, food, and sometimes politics and strife. This is the Culture Report. And one music genre that has taken the industry by storm and created its own culture and cemented its place forever is hip hop. I'm so happy to have witnessed its introduction and evolution in the music world. Plans have been announced to memorialize and further cement the legacy of hip hop music with the Universal Hip Hop Music Museum in the place where it all began. And I have Rocky Bucano, executive director and one of the founding members of the Universal Hip Hop Museum on with me today. Well, hello, Rocky, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Hello, and thank you for having me. It is a pleasure, and this is something that I'm so excited about. So tell me, what is your history with hip hop? So I started as a teenage DJ back in the early 70s. My cousin was Pete DJ Jones. He was one of the top mobile disc jockeys here in New York City. And I was one of his protégés, and uh, I used to carry his records when he'd get booked to you know, perform at different nightclubs around New York City. And I would just sit behind him and watch them all night long, you know, learning how to set up a mobile sound system and how to program records and how to keep a crowd, you know, on the dance floor. So my tenure in the music business began as a teenage DJ at the age of 15. I worked in club promotions, concert promotions. I had my own record label, Strong City Records, back in the golden era of hip hop. And I used to manage New Jack Swing Productions for Teddy Riley, who's one of the top five producers. I also ran a record company called Rowdy Records as executive vice president and general manager for Dallas Austin, L.A. Reid and Babyface. So I've been around the music business for over 40 years and so happy to be working on the project that I'm working on now. This is my era. I mean, when I was growing up, hip hop came on the scene in the 80s and uh, well, earlier than that. But, you know, that's when I you know, became a young adult. And so at the time, I just remember everyone saying, you know, our parents, oh, it's not going to hang around. You know, this is going to come and go. But here we are today. Right now, hip hop is 47 years old. And uh, later this year, uh, August 11th, 2020. 21, we'll be celebrating our 48th anniversary of hip hop. 
and it has changed the music industry, but more importantly, it has cemented its rightful place <laughs> in the music history. And so I want to talk a little bit about the history of hip hop and how it came to be, because you were part of it. Yeah. So, you know, hip hop started at a back to school party by a DJ who is synonymous with the birth of hip hop culture. His name is DJ Cool Herc. He moved from Jamaica to New York and you know, back in Jamaica, you know, all the DJs have these big sound systems. And he was known for having a very loud sound system. And he gave an after-school party at 1520 Cedric Avenue on August 11th, 1973. And that is kind of like the starting mark for the rise of hip-hop. But during that time, you know, people were not really calling it hip-hop. It was just the jam, um, going to the club. Disco was the predominant music genre during that time period. But the kids did not listen to disco. They preferred listening to the music of James Brown, Jimmy Castor, The Last Poets, Gil Scott Heron, and on and on and on. And Cool Herc would not play the entire record. He would just play a small piece that they called the get-down part of the record, which we now call the breakbeat. And the B-boys and the B-girls would wait for that part of the song to come on, and then they would go off, creating, you know, all this energy around the dance floor. So that's how hip-hop started. Since then, it has spread from the Bronx to New York City, from New York City down to, you know, the Mid-Atlantic and down south to the Midwest and the West Coast. And now it's the most popular art form and culture in the entire world. Wow. And as you talk about the sampling and using the pieces of the song or the, the parts that you mentioned, I know James Brown is the most sampled artist in history because of his fantastic music. And as you said, those break parts. He's definitely the most sampled artist. Without James Brown, there probably would not be any hip hop. Now, you are one of the founders. Who are the other founders and how did you come together for the Universal Hip Hop Museum? Well, the other founding members of the Universal Hip Hop Museum are Curtis Blow, Grand Wizard Theodore, who's the inventor of the scratch, Grandmaster Melly Mel, who's one of the inductees into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, Joe Conzo, who is a photographer that is known for taking hip-hop's first baby pictures, Cutman LG and Mickey Benson, who works with Ice-T. So we are the founding members, but other people that are, you know, part of this organization include LL Cool J, Ice-T, Nas, most recently, Yo-Yo. I just did a another online event with Yo-Yo, and, and she's like, you know, I got to be part of this museum. And so, you know, so now we're going to make her a part. You know, so as the museum becomes more aware out there in the general public, we're doing more outreach to different artists. We have an all-star advisory board of people from the music industry, people from business, people from education that are working with me and, and the rest of the board members to bring this project to life. How did you come together in creating the Universal Hip Hop Museum, you and the founders? It came as an opportunity, a real estate opportunity during my tenure. I was executive director of a AAU basketball program in the South Bronx called the New York Gauchos. The New York Gauchos are one of the premier AAU boys and girls after-school basketball programs. People like Stefan Marbury, Kimball Walker, Kyrie Irving, Mark Jackson, Chris Mullen, and on and on came out of this program. And a real estate developer came into the gym one day and just wanted to know if the, you know, Gauchos was interested in expanding our program to another part of the Bronx as part of an RFP, a request for proposal that the city of New York had put out for real estate developers to submit proposals to take over a landmark building called the Kingsbridge Armory. So long story short, this developer was given the green light to proceed with the Gauchos to make them part of his pitch. But he ended up losing. The city council was so excited that the Gauchos wanted to expand they asked if I wanted to be teamed up with another real estate developer by the name of Young Wu. So we did. And Young Wu, after about a couple months working with him on his project, just asked me one day, he said, Rocky, I want to add something more entertainment related so that the community stands behind my proposal with the city of New York for the Kingsbridge Army. And I told him, I said, well, you know, you should really consider, you know, putting money behind a hip hop museum because other people have attempted it. 
but for whatever reason, it never materialized. So Young Wu agreed. He was a little fascinated that, you know, I wasn't just a basketball guy. You know, he learned quickly about my music background. And I was able to assemble a group of pioneers. We got behind his project. Unfortunately, he ended up losing. But because I am a person that once I start something, I don't like to give it up. I stayed with it, even though we lost that opportunity. And over the next 10 years, just kept my nose to the grind and did a lot of work. And lo and behold, I have a new development team and we just started construction and this museum will be the most amazing space. And when it opens, the entire world will be coming to the Bronx to experience the global evolution of hip hop history. Well, tell us about that physical space and how it will be much more than a museum. The Universal Hip Hop Museum is not just curating the history of the local Bronx and New York story of hip hop. It's curating the entire global evolution of hip hop history and culture. What people don't understand is they think that hip hop is just what they hear on the radio. That's just one aspect of hip hop. That's rap. Rap music is one aspect. That's not hip hop in its totality. Hip hop is a living, breathing culture represented by five elements. The elements are DJing, MCing, breakdancing, graffiti, and the last element is knowledge. And because we are charted by the New York State Department of Education, the Universal Hip Hop Museum will focus a lot of its programming on giving students and researchers access to important documents and historical facts for research papers. We'll be creating curriculum for teachers to use inside the school to help with STEM education. And we'll be providing mentorship programs for you know kids who want to get involved in the arts in terms of learning how to produce music or you know dance or draw or you know create fashion or just become an entrepreneur which are all important aspects of hip-hop education well i certainly can't wait do we have a open date well the tentative open date is the end of 2023 we're you know trying to stay hard and true to that timeline because, like I said, 2023 represents the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. So, you know, we are planning a global celebration of hip-hop history during 2023, probably that whole year, notwithstanding any opening date. And as with any museum, I'm sure it requires some financial support. And people always look to individuals to donate and support the museum. So where and how can people do that? Yep. So we just launched our second phase of our capital campaign. The first phase was a success. We raised $23 million to get construction started on the museum's core and shell. And now the second phase of our capital campaign is to raise approximately 34 to $44 million to help us with the fit out. So we're seeking funds and donations from the general public, from music labels, from corporations that have monetized hip hop all around the world, and from philanthropic individuals who work with private foundations. We are representing probably one of the most important cultures and youth movements in the world, which is hip hop. Hip hop has done so much for the world, including helping to get our first African-American president elected Barack Obama when he ran for office in 2012. Absolutely. And the website? Our website is uhhm.org. And if people want to make a donation, there's a donate button right there. All donations are tax deductible. Great. Well, Rocky, thank you so much for joining me today, folks. Again, it's Rocky Bucano, executive director and one of the founding members of the Universal Hip Hop Museum that's anticipated to open in 2023, the 50th anniversary of hip hop. So make your way over to the website, uhhm.org and donate. Thanks again for joining me today. Thank you. Well, that's it for the show today. Wherever you go, go with all your heart. Confucius. Ladies and gentlemen. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Ladies and gentlemen.